Welcome to Bitchy History, an irreverent history podcast which is run by the woke history professor that Moms for Liberty has nightmares about. Here we are at episode 20 of the podcast, and today I've decided to tackle a topic for which the research drove me nearly to alcoholism on a number of occasions. I'm drinking right now, in fact. Don't blame me. I'm a historian. As a field, we have plenty of reasons to drink. I deserve hazard pay for knowing the history of this shit show of a country, but sadly, hazard pay has yet to be given. You can, however, buy I'm a historian. That's why I drink merch on the show store, though, if you want to help me out there. Today we'll be focusing on the rhetoric of one particular organization that's been making the headlines a lot these days. Planned Karenhood, Mary KKK, Hose for Hitler, otherwise known as Moms for Liberty. To start this off, I want to read you an excerpt from a recent speech given at a Moms for Liberty rally. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow Americans, American patriots, we with American ideals demand that our government shall be returned to the American people who founded it. We American citizens with American ideals are determined to protect ourselves, our homes, and our children against the slimy conspirators who would change this glorious republic into an inferno of a Bolshevik paradise. We will not fail you when called upon to give every support in our power in the fight to break the grip of communism in our schools, our universities, our very homes. No one has a greater veneration than I for the fathers of the Republic and the great structure they founded. And with that feeling, we gather here tonight to honor the memory of the immortal Washington. Oh, wait, no, sorry, that was a speech given at Madison Square Garden in 1939 by Fritz Julius Kuhn in front of thousands of goose-stepping American Nazis. You can see how I'd be confused, though, right? Moms for Liberty, like dozens or hundreds of right-wing extremist groups before them, use a rallying cry of the hallowed past, traditional values, protect the children, as a rallying cry for their causes. They twist and misrepresent history, trying to deify the founders, whitewash the bad bits of American history, and pretend that everyone who tells them that they're wrong to do so is a Marxist commie trying to groom their children. Honestly, the most disappointing thing about Moms for Liberty isn't that they exist. That's not a surprise. Groups like this have always existed in every generation in probably every country and civilization. The most disappointing thing is how utterly unoriginal they are, which is exactly what today's episode is going to highlight. While the similarities between Moms for Liberty and the Nazism of the German-American Bund or the actual Third Reich are more than obvious, I mean, Moms for Liberty literally quoted Hitler in one of their newsletters, and other members cheered when one of the leaders in the group said that she stood by that mom. Truly, Hose for Hitler works as a nickname for a multitude of reasons. But while I could go into those similarities in depth, I kind of feel like everyone does the whole the GOP is basically the SS thing, and honestly, I think we miss a lot of historical context when we jump right to Hitler. For one thing, Hitler's ideas and those of the Nazi party did not develop in a vacuum. Eugenics didn't leap fully formed from the pages of Mein Kampf. It didn't even originate in Germany. And the most quote-unquote successful eugenics program prior to the Second World War definitely didn't take place in Europe. No, that was in California. But the podcast will get to an episode on the history of eugenics in America eventually. For now, I want to focus on the long history in America of those groups that fought against woke curriculum in schools, and maybe together we can see if all of those organizations seem to have something in common. The history of viewing wokeness as an existential threat to American ideals dates back all the way to the earliest days of the United States and Thomas Jefferson's fears about northern universities. He saw the North and its universities as hotbeds of Federalist influence. After all, the North was where the majority of his Federalist opponents hailed from. To this end, he wanted more institutions of higher education in southern states. 
Jefferson saw that many young Virginians went north to study at Yale, Harvard, and Princeton. Jefferson wrote that we see our youth flying to foreign countries to obtain that of which they are deprived at home, a liberal education. And no, he didn't mean France or England when he said foreign countries. He meant the northern states. A bit odd for a man who put his life, liberty, and property on the line to form a new country, but he always was a bit more Virginian than American in many ways, I suppose. Jefferson warned that Northern universities worked to instill into students' young, open, and unsuspecting minds opinions and sentiments inimical to the interest and happiness of their parent country, for we see that they have too frequently returned back into the bosom of that country with a respect and affection for everything abroad, the effect of which is the contempt and disrespect for everything at home. Now, except for being full of words that my redneck extended family would never understand, this sounds exactly like every screed on Fox News about how universities are Marxist hellscapes of liberal indoctrination. And of course, it wasn't just the federalism of the North that worried Jefferson and the other Southerners. The real concern came from the growing anti-slavery and abolition movements in the North. Western expansion, largely Jefferson's responsibility through the Louisiana Purchase, had poured fuel on the sectional divides related to the issue of slavery throughout the country. Many Northerners thought that any new states entering the Union should be free states, while Southerners wanted to be able to move West with their system of plantation-based slavery fully intact. While Jefferson professed to be against slavery, despite being a slave owner himself, and let's not even start with the Sally Hemings situation, for now, we'll save that for my roast of Jefferson down the road, he was intensely angered by the North seeking to push the issue on ending slavery. He believed the North wanted to push the issue faster and further than white people in the South did, which was clearly correct. That said, any speed of abolition from the North would have been moving uncomfortably fast for the South since they were about as still and immovable on the issue as Stonehenge. But that is also a topic for another episode. Jefferson's hatred of Northern universities seems incredibly backwards in this case. If he truly wished for slavery to end in the South, would he not have wanted the next generation to be taught by abolitionists and opponents of slavery in the North? His main concern, he claimed, was that the North was pushing for too much too fast. But if the next generation of Southern leadership was opposed to slavery because of a Northern education, wouldn't that have sped up change in the South? I don't know. It just seems hypocritical to me to want to prevent the next generation from learning anything negative about slavery if you want slavery to end. But that's just my two cents on the issue. Regardless, we know what happened with students who attended the University of Virginia that Jefferson founded to keep students away from the brainwashing of Yankee schools, and it was the opposite of everything Jefferson claimed he wanted. They became more religious, more pro-slavery, and the young men in attendance were violently racist towards African Americans. It's amazing how keeping a group secluded from all outside thought, only learning from those who agree with their parents, and feeding off the toxicity of their fellow students will create a poor soil for growth. You'd think a farmer like Jefferson would have known something about crop rotation, but I guess he was just a gentleman farmer, not a real one. Jefferson died in 1826, but his sentiments about the evil brainwashing schools of the North lived on. The Richmond Inquirer in 1856 published an article about the University of Virginia in which they had this to say about Northern universities. Young men at college in the North are constantly exposed to the danger of imbibing doctrines subversive of all old institutions and of all the established tenets respecting religion, law, morality, property, and government. Every village has its press and its lecture room, and each lecturer and editor, unchecked by a healthy public opinion, opens up for discussion 
all the received dogmas of faith. Nothing is considered as settled, nothing too venerable or sacred to be controverted. The intellectual rashness of youth and their love of novelty predisposes them to reject old opinions and to accept, without sufficient investigations, what is novel and startling. It is not safe or prudent to expose young minds to the contagion of the conventions, the lectures, and the press of the northern isms. Under these circumstances, it surprises us that moral, conservative, and religious men at the North who can afford it do not send their sons to Southern schools. Their training would be moral, religious, and conservative, and they would never learn or read a word in school or out of school inconsistent with Orthodox Christianity, pure morality, and the right of property, the sacredness of marriage, the obligations of law, and the duty of obedience to the government." It will forever make me scream, laugh, and do a shot of whatever hard liquor is available that individuals like this could say that Northern schools, or wokeism today, is about brainwashing students, while also saying things like, Southern schools are better because students who learn there would never learn or read a word in school or out of school inconsistent with Orthodox Christianity, pure morality, and the right of property. Like, do they seriously not see the irony there at all? Basically, this entire complaint is northern schools make our kids question our shitty traditions, and we don't like when our kids do that, so we want to make sure they only learn what we want them to learn. Huh, sounds a lot like Moms for Liberty, doesn't it? And other articles from the pre-Civil War period are a lot less vague on what content they specifically don't like that's being taught to their kids by those damn Yankees. Abolition. In 1845, the Richmond Enquirer published this about the benefits of Southern education. Threatening signs indicate that a storm is coming upon us. It may be distant, it may be almost here, but that it is coming can we doubt when we consider in sh how short a time abolitionism has grown from insignificance into consideration and with what rapid swells it continues to advance. The author then says that when this storm comes from the South, they will need all the Henrys and Rutledges and Randolphs and Sumters and Lees, the pen of Jefferson and the sword of Washington to save the Republic and preserve the Union. But, they ask, where will all these young men have been educated? Amid a strange people differing from the Southerns in temperament and sympathies? Or with their kindred in blood and in feeling? On the rock-bound coasts of the chilly north where they must hear daily condemnations of their domestic institutions? And even from their instructors in science, opinions unfavorable to the system of society in the land of their fathers? Or among the blue mountains of their own sunny clime where no malign influence can weaken the ties which bind them to the soil of their nativity? Right, right, ma makes sense. That's totally not brainwashing. Here's another part from this frankly alarmingly long article, which always tickles me when I read it. The author goes on at length about the heightened dangers Southern students face of expulsion at Northern universities. For what, you might ask? Not for questioning the Yankee brainwashing, no. The author tells us exactly why more Southern men get expelled from Northern universities on average. They can't stop getting into fights over... Well, the author says sectional prejudices, but he means slavery. But knowing most men in the South when I was growing up there, it was probably because someone thought someone else looked at him funny and he couldn't let that slide. Basically, it's 19th century toxic masculinity on display. Good old Southern boys channeling Try That in a Small Town centuries before that shitty song was ever written. Imagine that. Throughout the 1840s and 1850s, we see a number of articles in Southern newspapers cautioning parents against sending their sons to Northern universities. 
From an 1841 letter to the editor, we get this. I have rarely seen a young man return from a northern school who was not completely disgusted by his experiences or whose mind was not so filled with dangerous political heresies or sickly fanatical fancies as to render him either dangerous or contemptible as a southern citizen. Every man, I think, should be educated with a view to his becoming a valuable citizen of that country in which his life is to be spent. Now, if my idea be correct, it is certainly most desirable that in youth, when lasting impressions are so easily made upon the mind, he should be kept aloof from all influences, the tendencies of which would be to make him dissatisfied with the institutions and habits of his own people. And it wasn't just in educational institutions that Southerners saw wokeism. In DeBow's review in May of 1856, they recommended that all homes should throw out any Northern publications, books, newspapers, magazines, etc., which were inimical to Southern interests and feelings, and only read publications published on Southern soil. Another article from the same year presses the need for books that will mold the opinions and instill proper principles into the minds of youth. Sounds precisely like something from the Moms for Liberty website, doesn't it? And there's another article in DeBow's, this one by the Honorable John Perkins Jr., in which he sounds exactly like a 19th century member of Planned Parenthood, saying that in the past year, I purchased a full course of Northern school and college books, such as are in most general use, and it seems to me impossible for a youth to be pressed through them and retain just feelings toward the South or proper ideas of its rights under the Constitution. From the frightful pictures of slaves at work under the lash, which ornament the child book, up to the sickly sentimentalism of their class readers, and on through the higher law reasoning of Hickok's moral science, there is a constant effort to impress the youthful mind with the idea that slavery is a great sin for the existence of which every American citizen is responsible until Congress acts on upon the subject. Yeah, no shit, Perkins. One thing Perkins was right about is his prediction that within five years, the issue of slavery would bring the North and South to blows. When that happened, he preferred to have young men of the South prepared to speak from conviction of the wisdom and policy of our peculiar institutions. I do not desire their judgment won over by the perverted moral sentiment or by fictitious appeals to their passions. To confess that slavery is a great social and political evil is to prepare for battle by throwing away our arms. It is worse to plead guilt and ask for mercy. Some articles even offered examples from the horrifying brainwashing material of the North. Here's one particular excerpt from the American first class book that they took exception to. That ocean which seems to wave with gentle magnificence, to waft the burdens of an honest commerce, and to roll its treasures with conscious pride, that ocean which hardy industry regards, even when the winds have ruffled its surface as a field of grateful toil, what is it to the victim of this oppression when he is brought to its shores and looks forth upon it for the first time beneath chains and bleeding with stripes? What is it to him but a widespread prospect of suffering, anguish, and death? Nor do the skies smile longer, nor is the air fragrant to him. The sun is cast down from heaven, and inhuman and cursed traffic has cut him off from his manhood, or his in his youth, from every enjoyment belonging to his being, and every blessing which his creator intended for him. I mean, clearly the South couldn't have their children reading that kind of trash. It might make them feel guilty about being white or something. Might make them examine their privilege. Horrifying. Vile. Downright un-American. But of course, the war comes, just as Honorable John Perkins predicted. The North won, amendments were passed, and racism ended forever and ever. Amen. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Oh, right. Unfortunately, Reconstruction is a massive failure, and probably a few more races could have stood to have been in the way of Sherman's march to the sea. 
Not that Sherman wasn't also a racist, but we'll get to that later. As the years plot on, the anger at woke textbooks continues to flourish in the South, and in 1894, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the original Planned Parenthood, is founded with the purpose of commemorating Confederate traitors, building roadside monuments to them, and promoting proper historical education for Southern students, i.e. the myth of the lost cause. No one was a greater promoter of this pseudo-history in schools than Mildred Lewis Rutherford, who looks like she was perpetually sucking on a lemon and was built by the Disney Imagineers that constructed the spooks for the Haunted Mansion. Look, I'm not being misogynistic here. I'd insult Rutherford this way even if she was Michael Rutherford. Evil ages you. Look at Mitch McConnell if you don't believe me. Mildred was the historian general for the United Daughters of the Confederacy. I use the term historian very loosely here, as I do not wish to associate my profession with this woman in any way, shape, or form. She was no more historian than a horse with an ice cream cone glued to its forehead is a unicorn. Mildred's greatest contributions to the Lost Cause pseudo-history of the South was in writing A Measuring Rod to Test Textbooks and Reference Books in Schools, Colleges, and Libraries, in which she says that the textbooks children in the South are learning from are unjust to the South and refuse to give the South credit for what she has accomplished, which has led her to prepare this measuring rod by which committees appointed by boards of education of heads of private institutions and their teachers can apply this test when books are presented for adoption. It's like the Moms for Liberty just copied the UDC playbook wholesale. And what is this measuring rod? What is just to the South? I'm pretty sure you could guess, but here's a few of the things that Mildred recommends looking for when deciding to accept or reject a book. Reject a book that calls the Confederate soldier a traitor or rebel and the war a rebellion. Reject a book that says the South fought to hold her slaves. Reject a book that speaks of the slaveholder of the South as cruel and unjust to his slaves. There's a few other suggestions in there, but these are the ones that really still pop up in most modern Lost Cause mythology. At least in my experience. Check out the comments on some of my Civil War videos on TikTok sometime. National UDC president Mrs. James A. Roundsville put it this way at one of the group's annual conventions. It has ever been the cherished purpose of the Daughters of the Confederacy to secure greater educational opportunities for Confederate children and by thorough training of their powers of mind, heart, and hand, render it possible for these representatives of our Southern race to retain for that race its supremacy in its own land. By Southern race, just to be clear, she means white people. The UDC's primary focus, like those of the pre-Civil War South that I shared earlier, was on ensuring that Southern schools used only history books that were loyal to the South. In 1915, Mildred Rutherford spoke about a particular book that had been found unjust and which the committee had tried to have removed from schools. When that didn't work, the group, in a quiet, dignified manner with no spirit of insubordination, kindled a bonfire on the campus and into it every copy of that history was thrown. The authorities were taught a lesson. Not one member of that class was expelled. She expressed another story, too, in this speech, which sounds all too much like the overwrought stories that Moms for Liberty share of little girls and boys crying about how a lesson made them hate being white. In it, she says that a veteran came to me with tears streaming from his eyes, saying, what can we do? My granddaughter came home from school and said, Grandpa, our teacher said today that slaveholders beat their slaves until the blood fairly gushed out of their backs, and I was ashamed to tell them my grandfather ever owned slaves. Oh, boo-hoo. Tough shit, you racist old shitbird. You should feel ashamed of owning slaves, fighting to keep them, 
and your granddaughter is better off knowing what you were up to. But really, this is the same motivation of the Moms for Liberty types these days. They don't want their kids and grandkids asking awkward questions about what Mommy and Daddy or their Gigi and Gaga were doing when Ruby Bridges was walking to school with U.S. Marshals, or the Little Rock Nine was being escorted by the 101st Airborne, or when the Clinton 12 were having their homes shot at by white supremacists. That would be an awkward conversation. And of course, Mildred Rutherford had this to say in a 1914 speech in Savannah, Georgia. The black race, she did not say black, should give thanks daily that they and their children are not today where their ancestors were before they came into bondage. Does that remind you of anything? I thank God for slavery. Mm. I thank God for the crack house. If it wasn't for the crack house, come on somebody, God wouldn't have never been able to use me how he can use me now. And if it wasn't for slavery... I might be somewhere in Africa worshiping a tree. Look, I don't care how much Kimberly Daniels insists that what she's saying here was taken out of context. I can't think of any context that would improve that. Of course, the UDC died down a bit after a while, but their ideas on controlling woke textbooks in school never did. The most marked resurgence came in the 1950s when the civil rights movement was gaining steam. Here's some excerpts from approved textbooks in Southern schools at the time. A fourth grade history book called Virginia History had this to say about slavery. Life among the black people, they didn't say black, of Virginia in slavery times was generally happy. They went about in a cheerful manner, making a living for themselves and for those for whom they worked. The high school history textbook Cavalier Commonwealth also said this about slaves. They did not work so hard as the average free laborer since he did not have to worry about losing his job. In fact, the slave enjoyed what we might call comprehensive social security. Generally speaking, his food was plentiful, his clothing adequate, his cabin warm, his health protected, and his leisure carefree. It also said that both slave and master understood that bondage as they knew it was not totally evil. Both realized that enslavement in a civilized world had been better in many respects for them than the barbarities they might have suffered in Africa. It sounds like these textbooks would fit in very nicely with Florida's new curriculum standards about how slaves develop skills which in some instances could be applied for their own personal benefit. You can't see the way my eyes are rolling right now, but it's suitably dramatic. But of course, all of this was for nothing when the Supreme Court said, hey, that whole school segregation thing you've been doing? Not cool, bro. And with Brown versus Board, segregation was over and racism ended forever and ever. Amen. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Wait, shit. No, the racist just doubled down. Sorry, I got that wrong. We'll show you. We'll just take all of our kids out of public school and send them to private schools with names like Stonewall Jackson Academy, where they conveniently only accept white students. Which, again, the current Moms for Liberty types seem to have simply copied from their predecessors' homework again with the push for voucher systems, which will funnel money from objectionable, woke public education into private religious schools, which can conveniently ask for religious exemptions from silly things like Title IX and set vague enrollment standards that they can enforce to keep out bad elements, which today are queer kids and, well, probably the rest of the minorities that couldn't go to segregation academies as well, let's be fair— 
And yes, these schools were definitely created to avoid integration. Let's be clear about this. Here's a quote on the reasons for the opening of one of these private schools in Farmville, Virginia in 1959. Because the people of Prince Edward will not submit to integrated public schools. For how long will the courts and the federal government permit the county to deny educational opportunities to the black children? Oh, yeah. In 1959, Prince Edward County, Virginia, famously shut all of their public schools by refusing to appropriate funds for those schools to run after being ordered to desegregate them. They did not reopen those schools for five years. So between 1959 and 1964, there were no public schools. The only way for African-American students to be educated was to either create a private school of their own or send their children out of the county. And they cheekily decided to blame the court for denying those kids education. Right, that makes sense. And these kinds of people are probably the same ones who would have gotten upset in 2020 when we had to close schools for a bit because of a pandemic. Nice to see where their priorities are set. And while these segregation academies were sprouting up like cases of leprosy in Florida, the fight against woke teachers and textbooks was still ongoing. While researching for this episode, I was lucky, no, lucky isn't the right word, it felt like a curse, but still lucky in the context of allowing me to find the information needed to write this episode anyway, I was lucky enough to come across a scanned-in copy of several hundred pages of the Citizens' Council newspaper from the 1950s and 1960s. If you haven't heard of the Citizens' Council, they were an anti-integration group that was formed in the aftermath of the Brown v. Board Supreme Court decision which has been not so affectionately dubbed the Uptown Klan for being the kind of group that has all the same ideas as the KKK, but is slightly less likely to make a public scene by lynching someone, blowing up a church, or setting a cross on fire in your front yard. Much more civilized. Wading through the absolutely nauseating ideas in this newspaper, I found many articles that sounded like they could have come directly from Ron DeSantis and Moms for Liberty's Telegram channels, Which, by the way, those Telegram channels are totally public and anyone can view them. They really are in there just screaming the quiet part out loud, so it's definitely worth checking out. Or one of Tucker Carlson's whiny white supremacist monologues. One article from 1959 talks about the left-wing influence of the NEA, complaining that textbooks praise things like the United Nations and welfare and call the recent unanimous decision of the Supreme Court against segregation in the public schools a momentous forward step in the onward march of democracy. And why are the textbooks saying this? Socialism, duh. The Citizens' Council then turns to quote from What Happened to Our Schools by Miss Rosalie Gordon, in which she says that these subversive ideas had to be sneaked over on the teachers and through the teachers to the students. And what better way to sneak them over than through the teachers' own organization and through the textbooks that teachers were given to use in the schools? The largest teacher organization is the National Education Association. It has innumerable committees, subcommittees, state and local branches, which reach into every phase of educational activity. It claims a tremendous membership among the nation's teachers, and its monthly publication, the NEA Journal, goes out regularly to teach these members. But like all mass organizations in which the majority of the membership has neither the time nor the inclination to watch too closely, the NEA is pretty tightly controlled at the center by a group of officials who, if not outright leftists, could hardly be described as pro-American. And yes, I'm absolutely sure that this is a quote from that 1959 article, not a quote from an episode of The Five on Fox News last week. 
The Citizens Council complains that students are undereducated because that's the intent of the Marxist socialist commies at the NEA. Oh, and here's a quote from a 1957 article related to Florida, which seems like it could have come from a Moms for Liberty newsletter in 2023, except this one doesn't quote Hitler. Somehow the Uptown Klan comes out slightly ahead of Klanned Karenhood on this one. The quote, We are alert to salacious literature being purveyed to our young people in the guise of education. In another entry, which bears remarkable similarity to something Nick Fuentes et al. would be pissed about, in March of 1958, you would find them taking extreme umbrage to a public transit ad in New York City, which showed a little white girl playing with dolls of various racial backgrounds, which said, She hasn't been taught to hate, yet. Keep her free from racial and religious prejudices. Lord Almighty, can you imagine the uproar if we put that ad up today? Moms for Liberty would be projectile vomiting like a scene from The Exorcist. Here's a tip. If your reaction to something is the same as one the Uptown Klan had in 1958, you need to work on yourself. But of course, it all comes back around to those commie teachers and woke textbooks. In the first regular meeting of the Pike County Citizens Council in 1959, Dr. W.M. Caskey spoke, saying, Our biggest problem is to rescue our youth from the would-be integrators. We have too long allowed teachers and text writers to indoctrinate our youth with their sloppy thinking. Unless we find some way to eliminate these teachings in our schools, we may as well disband and go home. We employ too many fuzzy-brained school teachers and church leaders. I'm sure Caskey would be greatly relieved to find out that today, right-wing churchgoers now think Jesus was a woke commie liberal. No more of that Sermon on the Mount for them. In May of 1958, the newspaper declared a need for teen training. Apparently, the Chicago Tribune had reported that the majority of students favored school integration. Well, that just won't do, the Citizens Council said. We clearly haven't been doing a good enough job instilling racism in our youngins, and those woke textbooks led them astray. We gotta fix that. In this, the struggle for the minds of our youth, we are up against a wily foe who knows well how to plant confusion and doubt, how to utilize the idealism and rebellion inherent in the young, and how to mold the whole into a disturbed pattern of doubt and defeatism. Yeah, I know. I honestly sometimes can't believe these quotes aren't from a Ron DeSantis speech or a Moms for Liberty newsletter either. And of course, just like DeSantis and Moms for Liberty, these folks weren't happy to stop with controlling their own children's education. No, they had to spread the anti-woke to every place, even places like the Red Highlander Folk School, which was an adult organizer training school in Tennessee, or as the Citizens Council described it, a commie school. In 1959, the district attorney general filed a petition to close the school, charging that it had a reputation of being a place where people drink and engage in immoral, lewd, and unchaste practices. So basically any university during Greek week. Big whoop. But the real problem, of course, was that the school taught workshops on strategizing for school desegregation and civil rights organizing. It also, according to some busybody neighbor, allowed interracial sexual shenanigans, apparently. I'm not sure how much I trust Mrs. William Lane on that claim in particular, to be honest. Representative Henry Lee Center of Bristol said that there was ample evidence that the school allowed and promoted immoral race mixing, sedition, subversion, and numerous other crimes that violate the American traditions. So they kind of sound like my people, honestly. Eventually, a court ordered that the school's tax-exempt status be revoked and they were dissolved for violating the terms of its state charter, which can be translated to doing things that might make racist folk nervous, basically. 
Much like DeSantis and Moms for Liberty, the Citizens Council seemed sure that there was a deeper agenda to all of this diversity, equity, and inclusion nonsense. In 1955, they wrote, Integration represents darkness, regimentation, totalitarianism, communism, and destruction. Segregation represents the freedom to choose one's associates, Americanism, state sovereignty, and the survival of the white race. These two ideologies are now engaged in moral conflict, and only one can survive. They cannot be fused any more than day can exist in night. The twilight of this great nation would certainly follow. Choose ye this day whom you will serve." Looking beyond equality, non-discrimination, and other catchword disguises, the Citizens' Council detects sinister and subversive forces at work behind the attack on Southern customs. I could go on and on. I have nearly 300 pages of this crap from the Citizens' Council and an unhealthy amount of speech transcripts from the UDC and pre-Civil War newspaper articles, but I think you might have gotten my rather repetitive point here. The whole anti-woke shit is nothing new in this country, and every single group that's harped on this has had one thing in common. Hatred. They hate anyone and anything that's not exactly like them, and not only do they hate it, they fear it. They fear they are losing their status, their privilege, their right to be the most successful just because they're a mediocre white dude whose last name is on a building at Harvard because of generational wealth, and they are fighting back as hard as they can to keep that power and privilege. Also the racism, but I kind of figured that was obvious. I'd like to say they won't win, but this is the same set of arguments we've been having in America on a loop for the last 250 years. And while they haven't made much progress, I'm not sure our side has either. After all, when the words of whiny Southerners in the 1840s sound pretty much the same as the words of whiny Karens in 2023, they've at least managed to maintain the status quo, which kind of sucks. What's the point of this episode? Hell if I know. But let me try to give you something to take away from this other than a hangover from how much alcohol you needed to get through this episode. In case you ever have any doubts on if Moms for Liberty, DeSantis, or any of that ilk have any points worth listening to, whenever your Aunt Susan or Uncle Bobby Joe start complaining about woke teachers grooming kids to make them gay— Just remember that they sound identical to a group that we call the Uptown Clan, and know that you are very much on the right side of history when you tell them to fuck off. And to Moms for Liberty, I have some advice that I very much doubt you'll listen to. But I'll give it to you anyway. You just need to take several seats and then try to restore the peace and control your urges to scream about all the people you hate. Thank you for tuning in to listen to me bitch about history yet again this week. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I didn't enjoy making it. If you are a Patreon supporter, you have my sincere thanks, and I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that you have August Parks to take advantage of, and this Thursday will be the next episode of the subscriber-only podcast, The Gaslight Gatekeep Girl Boss Sessions. It will be out on Thursday. I can't tell you what the topic will be, first of all, because it's a secret from the rest of you non-subscribers, but also because it's not planned yet. Additionally, I will be taking a couple of weeks off from the podcast, so this will be your last episode until I return on September 11th. Consider this my very short summer break before the fall semester of the podcast starts. Not that it's much of a break, since I'll be spending the entire time working on rolling out my first full online courses. Links to that will be on the website when they're ready to go. When the show returns, we'll be talking about the history of vaccines in America, a very topical discussion considering, you know, everything. During that episode, you'll also be hearing from a special guest, investigative journalist David Heath. So look forward to that. See you back here in a couple of weeks. 